Hey, hey, it's your host, Gans, and welcome to another episode of the Seed Table Podcast, where we try to make sense of what's going on in European technology. Today's guest is Patrick Sami, co-founder and CEO of SPAN, a London-based early-stage startup that helps people address lifestyle-related symptoms and conditions, such as anxiety, fatigue, and diabetes without medication. Health and health tech in general is one of my favorite topics, so having Patrick on the podcast was a blast. In today's chat, we discussed the very personal story of how Span got started, gone through entrepreneur first and failing his first company, Span's plan to change patient lives at scale and how his team is thinking about go-to-market, his decision to raise capital via crowdfunding, the impact of COVID in health tech, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hey, Patrick, I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing? Good, good. Thank you for having me. Uh, so by way of introduction, uh, Tell me what Span Health is, what you guys are doing. So Span Health is a company that delivers life-changing care to people who have lifestyle-induced symptoms or conditions completely remotely. So essentially, you get access to mobile applications where you can chat with a clinician continuously. That's what people really love about the Span experience. Uh, and what's like the non-PR, the non-BS story of how Span Health was uh, founded? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's quite interesting, actually. And, you know, I'm always surprised that we came together because we look from the outside like we're, we're very different. Uh, we're a doctor, registered nutritionist, and an engineer who turned into a product manager. And I think we all come from very deeply personal backgrounds. So for me, I'm an engineer by training. I'm French. I moved to the UK seven years ago. And I grew up really with the internet and, you know, building websites, products, not really looking into building monetized products and companies before I got to engineering school and started doing internships. I did an internship with 20 in Spain. I went to Stanford in California where I studied and worked at the same time on research projects and then built consumer products at Skype for three years. And for me, it was very natural when I thought about building my company at that stage that I wanted to do something that helps people. And I think I'm very driven by that personally. But also, at the time where I moved back from California, my mom got diagnosed with breast cancer, and I started looking at all the research that was coming out. So I'm you know, deeply curious, driven by science. I love looking at papers, seeing what's the difference between what we knew 30 years ago, what we know now. And that's what I started doing at the back of you know, my daily job. When I got to, to that, that thinking, I also got an offer from Entrepreneur First, that was in 2017. And, you know, they pay you for three months, put you in a room with a bunch of really smart people and you start a company, essentially. So it was a great opportunity for me. And naturally, I went to healthcare. I think that's, you know, the easiest way where we can have an impact and help people on a large scale. Aside from that, I think there's a lot of chronic conditions and chronic symptoms in my family. So that's something that was at the back of my mind. I was trying to look at the different things that had changed in the last five years in terms of research and where potentially it was also a match with technology. So, for example, our healthcare systems are really good at acute care. 
the flu, the cold, COVID, and handling those situations, treating um, any complications from long-term diseases when you are at the end of your life or just end-of-life care. We're extremely good at that. When it comes to not necessarily prevention, but dealing with long-term issues. So you have pre-diabetes or pre-pre-diabetes, and that's 10, 15 years before it turns into type 2 diabetes. And we want to make sure that that doesn't turn into type 2 diabetes, that we're handling that properly at the right time. Today, the systems are not built to do that. For example, in the UK, we have a one-to-one course that is delivered by uh, nurses or dietitians, and the waiting list is more than 50% are waiting for more than 12 months. So everyone is kind of waiting. That was pre-COVID. Now the wait list, I suppose, are just mad. The other problem is just the attendance rate. It's less than 12% across the country. So less than 12% of people who are diagnosed end up completing that course and getting the help they need. With digital and something that's, you know, by definition, is a chronic disease. So if you need chronic support, the best way to do that is when you get access to clinicians, the people who have the knowledge to help you at home. So I think even more than what Babylon is doing for, you know, handling doctor's appointments online, for chronic conditions, uh, technology make, makes a lot of sense. So when I met up with Rachel and Adam, who are my co-founders, um, so a medical doctor and a registered nutritionist, we were really looking at how to help people who have chronic conditions. And I think it was really obvious to us that the lifestyle-induced ones were the, the, the easiest ones where you could have a, a large impact just because you don't have to focus on 10 different types of medicine to get to uh, the bottom of their issues and solve that. Nutrition, a little bit of physical activity, and you know, long-term behavior change that's sustainable and that works. Um, and uh, you know, easier said than done, but you know, we've learned a lot uh, in the last 18 months to build something that actually allows people to achieve that. So yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much how we started the company. Perfect. So let's spend a few minutes on how Span Health works. Let's, let's go back to the example you said, the, the pre-diabetes example. Can you walk me through how you help people manage their chronic diseases, their illnesses? Yeah. Um, so something I forgot that's probably key for the story is that when I started EF, I was pre-diabetic. Uh, I was 28. I had just finished three years at Microsoft sitting behind the desk, you know, being fairly young and thinking that what I knew about nutrition was right and eating a big bowl of granola with yogurt and fruits in the morning, usually banana. So all three different types of sugars, basically, or anything that turns into sugar in your blood. And not knowing that, when I went through that journey myself, before starting the company, I completely changed everything I thought I knew about nutrition, especially the how fast, fast-acting carbohydrates that you have in refined processed food today, but also, you know, even in healthy foods like bananas or fruits in general, in a high dose can spike your blood sugar to a level that, you know, even if you're just predisposed to type 2 diabetes like I was, uh, you're going to show the symptoms very quickly. Your blood sugar is going to go up. You're going to test positive to pre-diabetes, probably type 2 diabetes in 10, 15 months. So the goal was really to say, you know, let's do it on myself. Let's try it first. I did it. And in six weeks, uh, my blood sugar was normal. In six months, no more sign of pre-diabetes. My GP had told me that, you know, he had never seen this before. He didn't really know what I was doing, but someone who's reversed his pre-diabetes that fast was new to him. And the only way I did it is essentially, I started looking at the research that, you know, the people who had done it before me uh, have pointed me to. 
I looked at that and I maybe went a little bit further. I looked at the doctors that were publishing his research, most of them in US universities. Uh, there's also some in the UK, in Europe in general, but most of them uh, were in the US. I actually reached out to them directly. I used their you know, Stanford, Duke, uh, Harvard emails. Uh, probably half of them at least responded to me. Three of them are our medical advisors on the, the board today. And these people just you know, gave me everything they're doing today. They have the luxury of being you know, in those prestigious universities, spending probably one hour per day uh, on, on one patient and you know, helping that patient, patient achieve the best they can. And Dr. Eric Westman, for example, at Duke, has 80% success or even more with reversing those conditions. Um, so it's the luxury of time. We didn't have that, but at the same time, I could do it myself. So that's what I did from his advice, just you know, using some of the research, I could figure out what he was doing with his patients, his YouTube videos, anything I could find, and then obviously asking him questions directly. And when I did it, and I understood what the doctor's point of view or the nutritionist's point of view would be in that case, and what they would do on a daily basis, I also saw it was highly repetitive. It's a lot of education, but it's also in a specific context, that patient has symptoms or has a struggle with what they need to eat, they need to change the nutrients they're eating, how many carbs, protein, and fats, and they don't know how to do it. And because this is based on the context um, of that patient, so how their blood sugar levels, their blood test in general, it's quite easy to personalize that in the end uh, with technology. So we, we really wanted to start that uh, at the beginning, and that's uh, essentially... For us, that's translated into starting websites with articles, which was, you know, looking back, the wrong way of doing this. Uh, we had really good traction because people were interested in solving their problems, especially going online for that. But uh, the engagement was really low and the people weren't make, making great progress. Blood sugar was coming down on average, but nothing that looks like remission. And in mid-2018, we switched to a chat where you can actually ask Rachel and Adam every single day the questions you want to ask and that was the answer for them to make progress we recently got a our first patient who uh, is actually the son of that patient so his son onboarded the, his dad on span and um, he made so much progress he started uh, not being able to walk he was attacked in his uh, shop five years before that in london so it was basically sedentary managed to for the first time i think uh, see the path to remission and also just in, in general, you know, the symptoms of diabetes when you're that advanced can be such that it's hard to work, it's hard to do your daily job, and there's a lot of things that, you know, you're prevented from doing. So we essentially change his life from that point of view. So, yeah, we we'll just want to help uh, as many people uh, achieve the same thing as he did. You mentioned this knowledge gap between what we should do and what we actually do. And your example is... is I think perfect. So you're by all means a smart guy, an accomplished guy, and and you were doing this thing that was actually counterproductive for your for your body, for your health. Why do you think that knowledge gap exists? That's that's a really good question. I think it's obviously you know the, the answer is probably it's probably multiple variables and parameters to this, but I think obviously the the main one is that we all rely on the the states, the countries, to provide us through public health with advertisement, campaigns, anything that you know, is around us in our, our environment that will allow us to understand what we should eat and how we should eat. And you know, it's probably a result of thousands of years of evolution uh, recently where we've changed 
the things that we eat, specifically probably the last 200 years, the, the industry of processed food, the industry of sugar as you know, subset of this and adding more sugar to the processed food. And then in 1970, actually changing uh, the guidelines completely and saying for the first time in the history of humanity, we're going to change the balance of nutrients. That's something that's core to our evolution. We're going to change that and think that everything is going to be fine. And, and we did it. So we said everyone should eat low fat. We reduced pretty much uh, the fat intake from something that was quite balanced, about 30% of for everything, to lower than 15% for fat. And then obviously as a result, people who are manufacturing these new products that were low fat added sugar and the carbs to make it palatable so that people actually like those products. And it's also a game in the food industry that, you know, basically you add more sugar so that your product is more addictive than someone else's. And um, it's only recently that we started talking about, you know, sugar, sugar tax. When you reach a certain amount of sugar, you shouldn't be able to sell, you know, more than that amount of products. Otherwise, you're basically counteracting what public health is trying to do. So generally speaking, I think that's, that's the issue and policies and uh, the wrong lobbies, you know, some, sometimes pushing the wrong things uh, all the time. It's, it's funny, actually not funny. It's, it's quite worrying that a set of unintended consequences and accumulated accidents that started with change in the composition of nutrition guidelines by taking away fat um, got us to this place. <laughs> Very interesting is if we look at the composition of what we're eating, it's basically um, the same proportions as what is produced in the U.S. in terms of you know cereals, um, animal products, and so on. So the simple fact that it's very much correlated to what they produce is a little bit strange when it comes to what the body actually needs in terms of long-term health and uh, optimizing that. And it, it's simple. It's the USDA who is responsible for agriculture in the U.S. that makes those guidelines. And it shouldn't be. It should be the health department or anyone who is actually responsible for public health. Um, so there's some sort of um, issues with the, the way we, we make the guidelines. And also, I think in Europe, we're a little bit guilty of just following the U.S. sometimes. They publish a lot of research. And, you know, we also publish a lot of research. But we're, we're guilty of not having the funding or not putting the funding and therefore having to rely on the U.S. to do the small feasibility studies that are then going to drive our researchers from investing more money uh, at the right time. So, yeah, we need to invest more in research and, and do that properly as well. Your way of solving this knowledge gap is via communication, one-on-one -on -one communication, the, this chat. Why do you decide to solve in this particular way? So I think... Part of it is just that we were driven by our users. So before even starting the website, we started the Facebook group, um, so literally from zero. We were very much focused on reversing those symptoms and brain fog, cravings, but specifically, I think starting with the people who have the need, so type 2 diabetes, pre-diabetes, polycystic ovarian syndrome, all these conditions. That Facebook group grew from zero to 500 uh, members in six months. And today, so 18 months later, it's 8,000 people on that group. These people basically were telling us what to do. We started with the, with the website. We saw the engagement. We saw the traffic. But we also saw that we weren't solving the problem. We moved to the chat. Then quickly we realized that people have uh, issues tracking. And we've almost spent six months developing something around that. 
only to just scrap it completely from the app because we realized that tracking devices are too expensive, that in the end, you know, it was the right problem to solve for the people who have type 2 diabetes and pre-diabetes. But for other conditions that we still needed to address, especially with the way we distribute, uh, that wasn't the right way. So we scrapped that recently and we're trying to build something that's more general where you, know, you don't need a blood sugar monitor to be able to make progress with SPAN. But you can log your symptoms and we can provide you with some sort of correlation with whatever devices you have, whether it's just steps on your phone or having a Fitbit, an Apple a Watch, anything that brings us data that allows us to then compute some sort of health score and then to show your progress over time, uh, but specifically for you to reflect. And we're logging symptoms like brain fog, um, very simple from zero to three, low, medium, high, um, every day. And then you see that progression over time. That's, that's very, very cool. The question is, how do you take this to scale? So you, you mentioned changing the life well, your life first, but then life of, of a patient very, very recently. How do you make this scale? How do you get this into the hands of anyone who, who, who might need it? So I guess there's two parts, and distribution is really hard in healthcare. If there's any healthcare entrepreneur listening that's just starting venture, really think hard about this problem. And I think mm, probably one of the wrong things I did is not think about it early on. Um, focusing on getting the clinical data to show the NHS it was working and so on, but not focusing on the business model enough and you're really chasing who's going to pay what price and getting that done first before moving on to it, solving any other challenges for the company. So we iterated. Consumer model, £80 a month. Um, you get access to the nutritionist on unlimited chat, unlimited video calls, you know, everything you need to solve your problem. Way too expensive for the UK way too expensive for Europe in general because we have really good healthcare systems. And even in the US, a lot of people have private medical insurance. So it would be a choice of why shouldn't I ask my insurance to pay for that? You know, it's really hard to get reimbursed in the US even. Second option, we went to the NHS. We were part of the NHS innovation program. We were seduced by the fact that, you know, they love everything that's related to innovation. But when it comes to actually paying for something, uh, it takes about 18 months to get there. And you have to confront the existing structure of pricing for the category you, you, you fall in. So for type 2 diabetes, there's a lot of companies selling like self-management apps with lessons, structured education programs, for £150 a year, about 12 50 a month, which is really low if you want to provide you know, one-to-one time with professional, but you're never going to fit in that model, essentially. So that was one of the struggles. Also, at scale with the NHS, when you reach you know, contracts of 300K, 500K, essentially you're not making any money anymore. So it's not scalable. You can't scale, solve the problem at scale like that, and your company is never going to survive. You really focus just on the NHS. So more recently, we actually uh, started focusing on B2B and distributing through employers. I think that's you know, a model that the US has done a lot more than us, but I think it's something that's changing in the UK. Um, nutrition and you know, we do a little bit of mental wellness because food and mood are extremely related and one will have an impact on the other. So the combination of both is a really interesting angle, but especially since COVID, because, you know, whether the employer is trying to decide who's going to go back to the office and needs a health risk assessment just with a questionnaire like we do or blood test, or whether everyone is staying at home and therefore the entire habits and the environment are changing from one day to another, they need to care about mental health. 
So yeah, we, we're really excited about this. I think it's a much more sustainable way of distributing. There's 27 million people in the UK employed in uh, the private sector. It's a, a nice way to, you know, nice initial market to start to distribute. Um, what we will struggle with at scale is because these employers are not even paying for private medical insurance to justify, you know, why they should believe in, in Spain, essentially. The way we're going to do it, I mean, is getting early adopters, showing the numbers, and really that's the difference between them, like Google going to the local nutrition clinic in London and buying a workshop and doing all this. They get data. They get data on how many people used it, what they benefit from, and then quantitative data that's completely anonymized on how many employees are stressed, anxious, and following that over time. So they can actually drive wellness and well-being as a part of the culture of the company instead of just, you know, buying this workshop, three months down the line, potentially in HR, you're thinking, should I do it again? You have no idea. Technologically speaking, how do we scale the one-to-one interaction? There's many, I mean, there's many options. I think a lot of companies are going for the full chatbot, so complete automation. We believe that the one-to-one interaction is something that's still important, but that also means that we need to scale this in a different way. And there's, I think one thing to mention is that our audience is quite young. It's 28 to 45. I want to have my first children. I'm a young parent. I'm, you know, maybe second, third children. And I'm slightly pre-diabetic, you know, at that stage, 45. That's probably the typical age range for us. And these people have, they didn't grow up with the internet and with apps, but, you know, they're very familiar with it now. Uh, it's not the typical age range of type 2 diabetes diagnosis, more than 50. And that means that we can do things differently because people love sending audio messages. They love, you know, they love listening to podcasts as well. So video messages as well, just filming themselves on the phone, asking proper questions to the nutritionist, sending that over, just expecting the answer within the day. That's something that works really well for them as well as just the chats. The chat is really the number one feature that people love. And we're going to add the doctors soon. So, you know, in the same way, you have a symptom, you don't know what it is, you just ask the question and you get an answer within the day. And that's something that we, people enjoy. So just by design, because a lot of things are made for millennials and Gen Z, I think the, a lot of the, the asynchronous communication will mean that we're more scalable than you know, traditional one-to-one with a doctor or nutritionist. The second aspect is that on the back end, we have a dashboard for the clinicians where they can see all the data and decide what to suggest to you, what messages to send, how to change your treatment, how to adjust uh, your nutrition plan or your cognitive behavior change plan. And all of that is something that we need to really invest in in the next uh, two years uh, to build something that's extremely scalable and then to obviously improve it in the future using the data. So for now, I wouldn't say it's AI or machine learning. It's really just database, data-driven decision-making. And then in the future, yes, we'll use all the historical data we have to actually automate some of the suggestions that the clinicians receive. And you can almost imagine something where they see three treatment options with a statistical score. And, you know, they look at each of them, look at the context, and essentially verify that that path is going to be interesting for the patient. And we can automatically cluster patients based on questionnaires and blood tests, many data we have, put them in those care paths. And then, you know, the follow-up is actually done manually. That's saving 80% of the repetitive work that those clinicians will be doing. And that's, again, one of the benefits of focusing on chronic care, especially lifestyle-induced conditions, that we're very much focused on that problem so we can look at it with that lens and also automate uh, things with that lens. Going back to, to the first part of the answer and 
on distribution, I think you're, again, the perfect example of why companies should care about this. You mentioned being uh, at Skype for three years, working on communication products and just being sit down at a desk on a chair for, for I don't know how many hours per day and then leading to, to your condition. So I think that's that's a perfect testament to it. No, for sure. And there's, um, I mean, that translates into absenteeism. I mean, Matt Hancock uh, just spoke about this yesterday, 93 billion a year. It's a, it's a number that seems really high. You don't really picture what it is, but you know, it's at least 1200 pounds per employee per year uh, in this country. That's a lot of money to be saved. And that's also, you know, so it delivers savings, but also your, your employees are really happy and they feel better. That's obviously going to reflect on your customers, whether you're B2C, B2B, or any type of company. The second aspect is also that we are focusing on large businesses, but are not Google, Microsoft, or you know, uh, John Lewis, the huge ones, I guess, at the moment. Of course, we'd love to have those customers, but maybe they're not the best product for us today. Specifically, I think those customers have a problem with talent. They want to attract the best talents. They're competing with those big companies. It's hard to get someone off um, Facebook or Google and bring them to your company. And millennials and Gen Z, I think we look a lot at the benefits and not just at the salary. It's, you know, it's a package. It's the culture of the company as well. And have benefits reflect a lot how much the company will care about you uh, in the end. So I think a lot of these uh, companies are looking for a way to differentiate themselves when they attract new talents and when they have, you know, when they want to basically have better retention of their existing talents. And there's a lot of research, this is specifically uh, Willie Stowe Watson, who's a consulting firm specializing in benefits, has shown um, that the employers who genuinely engage with well-being, not just providing the benefits, but I mean, looking at the wide benefits and then also engaging to make sure that those benefits are used in proper way. So having people on board to do that champions in the company have a much higher uh, retention rate and attractiveness rate when they ask employees or people externally to rate the employee. And I think that's something that was only accessible to Google. It's one of the you know, old startups that was really into company culture and making sure that the employees are treated like kings. And you know, it's almost a, a, every Google office is almost like Disneyland for software engineers and product managers and so on. Now, with the kind of things that we're doing and how low the barrier to entry for a company is, we can provide that to even the Airbnb office in London or Revolut or Monzo. Everyone can really buy those kind of benefits without having to invest in a team of people in HR who are going to organize all of this. And, you know, it's almost like SaaS for health benefits in some ways. No, that's, that's perfect. And thinking about scale-ups like Monzo, for instance, the great thing about that is that they are growing really, really fast. So they don't really have the processes set up to be like an enterprise. So the sales cycle is, is much, much faster. Again, going back to, to distribution, one of the things that you need to solve these problems is, is capital. And I'm prefacing that because you are doing something really interesting, which is raising a crowdfunding round. And the question is why that versus a more traditional venture path? Yeah, I think it's, it's never really one or the other, but I think crowdfunding is becoming an asset that is extremely interesting when you have a community, strong community around your business. And, you know, because a lot of brands are being built these days, 
very strong D2C or B2C brand, I think it makes a lot of sense to, to have a community. For us, it was just an accident of history because we started building this company this, this way. But we do have a community of 8,000 people on the Facebook group, 10,000 people on the newsletter, 4,000 users. All these people uh, who have received some benefits from Span over the last 18 months. And we wanted to make sure that those people are aligned with us. Some of them even offered to invest in the past. And I think it's just, you know, something that was repeating in our heads, oh, maybe we should think about this during the crowdfunding round. And um, recently we started adding more Android money to our round. We were starting also a seed round. And so it was just the beginning of the seed round, getting a little bit of traction around that. And the fund that we're working with, unfortunately, because of COVID, they had to pull the offer. And then we thought, okay, maybe that's the best, the, the best time to do this. We just need a little bit of money to get us through this year um, because there's going to be a delay in uh, when we generate revenue. So let's use you know, crowdfunding in our community to get to a stage where actually we have a lot, enough traction to raise from professional annual investors on a platform like Cedars. That worked really well for us. We had no idea if it was going to work, but we tried it. We saw, you know, you do pre-registration campaigns, you have some idea, and then you launch privately, you start gathering uh, investor commitments privately and on the platform, and then you launch publicly. And that's when Cedars are really, and all the other platforms, we really market to their users. And we got to 100% in a little bit more than 24 hours. And now we are 132K. So 132%. Trying to aim for 200K, uh, we're still looking for Android investors, but you know, it puts us in a position where we can do a lot more this year and actually start um, delivering to a lot more companies. I think it's, it was important for us to have the capital to do so because like you said, it's, it, it demands capital and we are at a stage where also a lot of companies need us and we need to make sure that we can have the time to reach out to them and you know, go through the sales cycles with them basically and also see how we can help them uh, across the next six months while they return to work and so on. Oh, that, that's, that's perfect. I'm wondering, what do you think is your edge as a founder? My personal edge, as in, I think, I think you know, it's, it's really interesting being uh, the founder and being the CEO, I guess. And in that case, you know, I'm really bad at small picture stuff, like one-to-one, one-to-one tasks where you need to really execute, you know, go through, that, uh, go through a list of things to do and just uh, one by one look at all the details. I'm not really detail-oriented. I'm really big picture and, you know, looking at other things. And I think as a result, I'm curious about a lot of things. I'm almost a generalist, I guess, from that point of view. And I know a lot about biology from everything I've read a lot less than Rachel or Adam, but just enough to be able to communicate with them and then to go back to sales because I've started doing that myself and I'll have someone in sales and to communicate with all these people and to coordinate, I think. And I think that's not something I'm the best at, but I'm definitely learning really fast and I'm becoming better. And I think it's for the first time I'm realizing that I've always been like that and I've always struggled being the best at one thing because I just wasn't made for that, I think. I was just naturally better at doing different things and organizing people to do different things uh, and learning what they do before I actually hire them so that I can really understand how to work with them essentially. Um, so I, th- I think right now in the team, that's probably my edge. 
one way to put it could be you're a much better engineer or, or founder than most biologists and a much better biologist than most founders. That could be a, a weird way of putting it. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great idea. I'm wondering, in this past few years, you've went from Skype to Entrepreneur First to launching a couple companies. What has been your biggest mistake and how did you recover from it? So at Entrepreneur First, I started the company. So we did get the first part of the investment from them. I think at that point, we were trying to, to build obviously a co-founding team. We didn't really have the pressure of the, the program because we had started working together before. We just happened to have both have joined the program at the same time, start this company. And ultimately, there was a a lot of dysfunction in the co-founding team. We, we had too much of an overlap of skills, I think. So, you know, clarifying who's gonna do what was difficult. So as a result, a lot of issues um, started. Also, I think in terms of personalities and how those personalities are different, we are maybe too similar from our point of view, instead of being connected on the core values, but then being different people in the end which I think today in the team, we are very different people, but we have those core values. We always come, come back and we're really similar from that point of view. And I think, you know, it's finding that, that balance. I'm not sure I can put uh, the exact words on it and, and create a framework for it, but that's probably one of the reasons why co-founding teams split, I think. It's focusing on that initial relationship. One of our advisors from uh, the family, Usama Amar, he says um, that essentially, you know, you wouldn't get married to someone tomorrow and you, know, you would date and you would date and do things together and, you know, probably figure out at some point that you want to be together long term. But you wouldn't do that after two, three months and start a company. Basically. It's the same thing in that case. I think dating in that situation is probably building projects and starting to work together without, you know, solid engagement. Yes, obviously agreeing that, you know, if you start a company, uh, you're going to do 50-50 uh, you know, and just start this. But at that point, you just start a project, see how the relationship is, relationship is going. But also, I think something as I've learned from the family, actually, is doing things outside. And taking that time to just go for a barbecue with your co-founder, to organize maybe a dinner at a restaurant with his partner or her partner, and to be able to you know, have that time where you're talking about life and the rest, because building that relationship, uh, especially if you don't know that person for the last 10 years, 15 years, is really important. It's probably the key to making sure that the relationship uh, works longer. So I don't think everyone needs to start a company with someone they've, they've known for the last 15, 20 years, or they've worked at, uh, with at university, for example. But I do think that if you don't have that, you have to compensate for it. And you have to, to be really smart how you can build that relationship long term. Probably, you know, I'm not, probably not the best at that. It's still something that we, well, I think, all learn in the team. But something that's truly important. What's the most ambitious version of SPAN? The most ambitious in terms of uh, where we want to go, I guess? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, we're really trying to uh, quantify our mission. I think it's, it hasn't changed. That's one of the things that hasn't changed. Our goal was really to empower people to live better and longer. And we said that the first success rate for us would be to help 1 million people do that. For now, you know, 
in general numbers, we are 10,000. That's a, it's a long way to 1 million, but that's where we want to where, where we get. And that's probably going to be, you know, over time also a success metric on that. Now it's a little bit general and, you know, it's the amount of people who have benefited from SPAN in some ways, but I think we want to get to a level where from the clinical trials that we're doing with NIHR and the NHS and other places, or just, you know, through employers and having data, how many employees actually succeeded from uh, using SPAN? So customer success and beyond that, uh, we want to have a number that um, we can use to show that we actually have success on the company and, and positive impact. Thank you so much, Patrick, for joining me. It's been a pleasure and a fascinating conversation. Yeah, it's been a pleasure as well. Uh, thank you for a great question and uh, happy to exchange with anyone if they want to just reach out to Hey, this is Gons again. If you enjoyed this episode of the CTL podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeatTable.com. SeatTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.